You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hi everyone. Um, we're going to hear God's word now, so please feel free to open your Bibles to John 3 um, and George will read the Bible to us today. Thanks. Um, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into to Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John was also baptising at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. Yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I but am sent ahead of him. The bridge belongs to the the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends to the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must come greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who from earth belongs to the earth. The one who is from earth is belongs to earth, and to the one who speaks from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God has God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God has given them the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Thank you. Uh, if you want to follow along with an outline of my sermon, you can find that on the online welcome card that Sharon mentioned earlier where all the announcements are. Uh, there's also a copy of the Bible passage there. I think there should be a few copies of the Bible uh, around if you don't have your own one, uh, typically stacked at the end of uh, the aisles. And so if you want to open that up to John chapter 3, uh, that'd be great. Uh, I'm going to pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that as we, uh, as we work through this passage of the, your word this day, uh, that you would help me to uh, make a whole lot of Jesus and very little of myself. Uh, we pray that Jesus would be lifted up, uh, that he would be magnified in our hearts and minds. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, so way back in 1983, which happens to, to be the year that I was born, but that's just a, a coincidence, uh, Glenn Jones wrote a classic funk song. Maybe you're not fully in touch with the funk world, uh, but Glenn Jones wrote this classic funk song called I Am Somebody. Uh, the, the first verse and chorus goes like this. He says, I woke up one morning and saw the handwriting on the wall. Time was passing, uh, passing me by so fast and I wasn't moving at all. I said, what did I do? I looked in the mirror and I said to myself, to live in this world, you've got to believe in yourself. And this is the chorus. I am somebody and the universe is mine. 
I am somebody and the world belongs to me. Now, maybe that sounds a little bit kind of crass and over the top. I'd never say something like that. Uh, But I do think this song does put its finger on a deep kind of fear or anxiety or insecurity that pretty much all of us have. It's the fear or anxiety that we might live our entire life and basically go unnoticed. That will amount to nothing. That will end up just a big nobody. We see this fear, it sort of bubbles up in feelings of jealousy and envy and maybe anger and bitterness, frustration, where when it seems like other people are being noticed, other people are proving themselves to be somebody and we're being left behind. I wonder if you've ever experienced this in your own life. I've certainly experienced it in my life. Uh, maybe you're not familiar with the, the words kind of church planter or church planting. That's just kind of an inside Christian kind of jargon for people who might be a part of starting new churches. And myself and a wonderful team of people started this church here at, at DPC. Uh, but the point is that in the world of church planting, there really can be a bit of a comparison game. A bit of subtle competition when you get together with other church planters. You know, how quickly is that person's church growing? How many people have they seen come to know Jesus? How many, you know, small groups do they have? How many people serving in ministry teams? And there's this sense of comparing yourself to others. A feeling like, why is their church growing quicker than ours? Or why is that person given more opportunities than I am? Why does everyone seem to notice them and not notice me? Now, I'm sure that sounds quite ugly to you and you think, oh, I'd never do something like that. But, well, maybe if you're honest, you can think about areas of your own life where you felt like a nobody because you're comparing yourself to to someone who seems to be a real somebody. And, of course, in those moments when you you feel like a nobody, uh, the the kind of dominant message of our culture, I think, encapsulated by this song by Glenn Jones, is what you've got to do is look yourself in the mirror and tell yourself, I am somebody. That'll fix things. And then you've got to go out and take on the world and prove to the world that you are indeed somebody. And that's the big fix that our culture promises. According to our culture, that's the path to being somebody, to being great, to being noticed. And let me say, that is not Christianity. Of course, Christianity, in one sense, does say that all of us are somebody. Very important. It says every single one of us is made in the image of God. We're precious. We've got inherent dignity and worth. In that sense, every single one of us is somebody, just by virtue of being made by God. But when it comes to this topic of greatness, of becoming great, the essence of the Christian faith is not encapsulated by I am somebody by Glenn Jones, but I'm just a nobody by the Williams brothers. Either the Williams brothers wrote this song and the verse in the chorus, uh, sorry, the chorus goes like this. I say, I'm just a nobody, try to tell everybody about a somebody who can save everybody. Maybe you think the lyrics are a bit cheesy, right? I'm just a nobody. 
trying to tell everybody about a somebody who can save anybody. I reckon that's not a bad summary of what we see in this passage from John's Gospel. In the ministry of John the Baptist, we see that true greatness, right, but becoming a somebody is not found in asserting your own greatness, in saying and telling the world, I am somebody. No, no, it's found in understanding and being joyfully content with the fact that in comparison to the glorious greatness of Jesus, you're just a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody who can save anybody. That's kind of my key idea for this passage. So let's take a look at the passage. Look in verse, uh, first of all, in verses 22 to 26, we see that Jesus is becoming greater. He's becoming somebody. And John the Baptist's disciples are both envious and fearful. Uh, take a look at verse 22. Right? We're told there after Jesus and his, uh, after this, Jesus and his disciples uh, went out into the Judean countryside uh, where he spent time with them and baptized. So if you were here last week, you know this is after uh, Jesus had his conversation with Nicodemus, uh, a conversation about how all of us need to be born again, where we need a completely fresh start by the power of God's Spirit. Uh, And that conversation happened near the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, But now Jesus wants some time with his disciples. Uh, So they go to the country. Uh, And you see that, that, that that is one of the purposes of going away, that they might spend time with Jesus. What a wonderful thing. I mean, Sharon's done a great job of leading the service today and saying today what we need is to meet with Jesus. What a wonderful thing just to spend time with Jesus. I do wonder how you're going with that. I'm someone who finds it very easy to, to make time to do things for Jesus, but a bit more tricky to make time to spend with Jesus. Just listening to him and talking with him and delighting in him, enjoying his presence, just being with him. I wonder how you're going with that at the start of this new year. Maybe after church you could ask a friend, a brother or sister in Christ, how are you going with that? Maybe you could encourage one another, spur one another on, encourage one another to spend time with Jesus. And you'll see at the end of verse 22, while they're out in the, in the countryside and spending time together, uh, they're also busy baptising. Right now, verse 23 tells us uh, that there's plenty of water in this area. So it's pretty clear, isn't it, that the type of baptism that's happening here is water baptism. But baptism in the, in the plenty of water that's around in this area. So even though, remember in John chapter 1, John the Baptist said, hey, Jesus is greater than me. Why? Because he'll baptise people with the Holy Spirit rather than just with water. But of course, being baptised with the Holy Spirit is much more important than being baptised with water. But still, Jesus seems to think that it's important for his disciples to be baptised with water. And now, admittedly, we'll see next week at the start of chapter 4, Jesus himself didn't baptise people, right? It seems that he kind of delegated that to his disciples. But still, surely it was under Jesus' direction that this, uh, this baptising was happening. 
that this isn't the main point of this passage, but let me just say, if you're someone who trusts in Jesus and follows Jesus, but you've never actually been baptised in water, why don't you come and speak to me after the service? Or another leader in the church, a friend of yours, we'd love to talk to you. Why not experience this wonderful sign of your sins being washed away on the inside? by being baptised in water, right? This wonderful sign of being initiated into connection, not just with Jesus, but with his people. Well, let me encourage you to consider that. So Jesus and his disciples, they're out in the countryside, they're spending time together, they're busy baptising, but they're not the only ones out there. Well, look at verse 23. Now, John also was baptising at Anon near Salim uh, because there was plenty of water there and people were coming and being baptised. This is not John the Apostle who's writing the Gospel, but John the Baptist. I've heard a fair bit about him in John's Gospel so far. And John the Apostle who's writing the Gospel wants us to see how Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's ministry actually overlapped a little bit. And he wants us to see that the tensions and conflict and maybe frustrations, the envy, the jealousy that came to the surface because their ministries were overlapping. How did John's disciples deal with that? How did John the Baptist deal with that? In fact, in verse 24, John makes it even clearer that their ministries overlapped a bit. It's a bit of a random verse. Take a look at verse 24. Uh, This was before John was put in prison. I don't know if you've thought about that, but it's kind of like, well, yeah, like he wouldn't have been out in the countryside baptising people if he was in prison, right? It sort of feels a bit redundant. Why does John put that in there? Well, it's because John's writing his gospel a bit later than the other three gospels were written, and he knows that Matthew, Mark and Luke kind of give the impression Uh, that Jesus' ministry started completely after the ministry of John the Baptist and it started in Galilee, not in Judea. Uh, So just one example in Mark 1 verse 14. Mark says, after Jesus was put in prison, Jesus went in... uh, Sorry, after John was put in prison, rather, uh, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And uh, broadly speaking, that's right, right? The vast majority of Jesus' ministry happened after John's. But John, the, but John the Apostle wants us to see this, uh, this kind of small period of overlap. How did they deal with that? How did John the Baptist deal with that transition? How did he deal with Jesus becoming greater? How did his disciples deal with that? Oh, so that's why this story is here. So John the Baptist and his disciples are out baptising people in the the countryside and in verse 25 we're told an argument develops between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Ceremonial washing, that's kind of Jewish kind of purification washings, kind of ritual washings that they used to do. They had a whole system of these ritual washings. And you can imagine that if they're seeing John the Baptist baptising people in water, it's kind of cleansing and purifying. And so it raised this whole question of how can we be, how can we be made clean? How can we be made pure? But what's actually going on here? The argument is just another example of how what God is doing in Jesus is something new. It's something better. It's something so much more wonderful than the old ways of Jewish traditions. 
Well, that's what we've seen in the previous chapters, isn't it? Think back to the start of chapter 2. What does Jesus offer? He offers new wine. It's something that's different to the old system of Judaism. What does he offer? A new temple. What a completely new way of entering into God's presence through trusting in him and his death and resurrection. And what does he offer? A bit of new birth. At the start of chapter 3, he offers a new saviour lifted up on the cross, given for our sins in our place. So you can imagine if you're a first century Jew with all this questioning of how things have always been done amongst our people, well, that's going to cause a bit of tension, isn't it? And here we see that it's starting to boil over, even between John the Baptist's disciples, because John the Baptist is aligned with Jesus. He's associated with Jesus. In fact, it seems like this argument leads John's disciples to ask some big questions, like, like, where's John the Baptist's ministry going? What's the future of his ministry with Jesus becoming greater? So look in verse 26. They come to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was in, uh, uh, sorry, that man who was with you the other, on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Right, these disciples call John the Baptist rabbi. Right, he's their teacher, their master. He's the one that they're chosen to dedicate their life to, to follow, to learn from. And there's a fair chance that's been pretty costly for them. Oh, we don't know that for sure, but John the Baptist is a pretty marginal and quirky guy. If you read the Gospels, you know, he's out in the wilderness, he's doing, practicing this strange baptism that the Jewish people aren't familiar with. He wears odd clothes, we're told that he eats locusts, like he's a quirky guy. You can imagine that choosing to follow and be a disciple of John the Baptist would have been quite costly. Sacrificing perhaps some status, some reputation, even some relationships. And you can maybe get inside the head and heart of these disciples who are seeing all these people going to Jesus and they're thinking, maybe we've backed the wrong horse. We should have got on the Jesus bandwagon, not on the John the Baptist bandwagon. What is going on? And so they're coming to John and they're saying, John, can't you see what's happening? Right? Your, your song is dropping in the charts. The spotlight's shifting. Your star is falling. What are you going to do about it? Jesus is becoming greater. And you can see that the fear and envy in John's disciples. So notice that they refer to, how do they refer to Jesus? That man. Right, that man who you were with, that man who you testified about. Right, it is almost like they can't even, they don't even want the name of Jesus in their mouth. You know, it gives them a bad taste. Maybe sometimes you feel like that about your competitors, people you're comparing yourself to. And actually, in the midst of this fear and envy and bitterness towards Jesus, they're starting to think a bit irrationally. Well, you see there at the end of verse 26, what do they say? They say, everybody is going to Jesus. Well, that's not true. Well, I mean, that's how they feel because more people are going to Jesus. But we know at this point that, well, there's still quite a lot of people going to John the Baptist. But that's what happens when your heart is gripped by bitterness, isn't it? 
when you're envious of other people, you, you get the blinkers on and you just feel like it's unfair. And that they're getting everything and you're getting nothing. And we can feel like this in ministry and in serving Jesus as well, can't we? Comparing ourselves to other people, saying to ourselves, why can't I get the same acknowledgement and acclaim that that person's getting? And why does that person always seem to get, kind of be in the in crowd and I'm always just on the outside? Or why do they get that kind of opportunity to serve in that role and I don't get it? We find this bitterness and envy bubbling up in our hearts. We find ourselves getting angry and frustrated at a brother or sister in Christ. And this can happen not just in ministry, but in life in general, doesn't it? When we look at other people, and they just seem to be ticking the boxes in life that we want to tick ourselves. Right? They're kind of running ahead, becoming somebody, and we're lagging behind as a nobody. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you look at someone else and you think, why, why can they seem to land on their feet with a dream job or a perfect promotion every time? And I can't find a job at all. Maybe it's like maybe you're just deeply lonely. And you see a brother or sister who meets a, a kind of ends up with a godly husband or wife. And on one level, you, you feel good about it. But deep down, you, you just feel bitter because you, you can't even find someone to go on a date with. You, know, you turn up at church, you're excited to hear the news of the, the couple who's pregnant or having another baby. Kind of excited, but that's their third and you wouldn't mind one. But this is what we do, isn't it? We're stuck in this game, this comparison game. And it leads to envy and jealousy, rising up, anger and frustration towards others. So how do we process all of this? How do we not kind of succumb to this brutal game, really? where the only way it seems to lift ourselves up is to push other people down. Well, take a look at how John the Baptist deals with it. In verses 27 to 30, we see that Jesus is becoming greater and John the Baptist is joyful and content. He's not fearful and envious, but joyful and content. At first, because of verse 27, he says, I'm content... Because I know that I'm serving in the role that God has given me. A person can receive, John says, only what is given them from heaven. John has a big view of God, doesn't he? He understands that God in heaven is sovereign. And he determines the the exact roles and opportunities and gifts uh, that absolutely everyone has. And we on earth are just servants. And what's our job? Our job is to humbly receive the roles that God has given us and to serve contentedly in those roles. Well, we're not to be fearful that someone else is going to snatch away the role that we have. 
We're not to be envious or jealous because someone else seems to have a bigger role or a bigger set of gifts than us. We're to contentedly and joyfully receive the, the role and the capacity and the opportunities that God has given us and serve in that place, knowing that it's no accident. So let me encourage you. Trust in God's sovereign care for you. Trust that the roles that you currently have are the ones that he wants you to have. That's not to say that your roles come down on a kind of fixed gold plate from heaven at the start of your life and they can never change. But the roles that you're in right now are the ones that God wants you to be content with and to serve him in. Are your roles at home, whether it be as a housemate or a husband or wife or, or a mum or dad? Are your roles at work? Your roles at church? But humbly receive those roles and serve in them with joy. Now that's verse 27. And then in verses 28 and 29, uh, John kind of unpacks two different aspects of exactly what his role is. So in verse 28, he says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just preparing the way for Jesus, who is the Messiah. That's my summary. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, uh, but I am sent ahead of him. I remember Messiah there. That's a title. It means God's chosen and promised king, the one who's sent into the world, the one who will establish and rule over God's wonderful kingdom uh, that will one day bring all the blessings of heaven down to earth. But the Messiah. And John's saying to his own disciples, you guys know that I never said I was the Messiah. I've always been very clear that that is not my role. My role is just to prepare the way for Jesus, who is the Messiah. Well, we do. I mean, if you work in any organisation, uh, you know that it's very important to have role clarity, isn't it? But that's what John has. He knows what his role is and isn't. He knows what the expectations are of him. And that's important. Many uh, people have said over the years that uh, Christian uh, kind of uh, people in Christian ministry, Christians in general, maybe people even in kind of helping professions in general, uh, can have what is called the Messiah complex. You've heard this before. The Messiah complex is the person who thinks that it all depends on them to save the world, to rescue people, to redeem people, to, to fix people up. Uh, but as Gabby says to me sometimes, the job of Jesus is already taken. You don't have to save the world. It's not your job to save the world. It's your job to, to point people towards Jesus, who is the saviour. So that's Sean's first response about his role, the role that God in heaven has given him. Uh, his second response in verse 29 is, I'm not the bridegroom, I'm just the best man uh, who, uh, the best man for Jesus who is the bridegroom. Hey, look in verse 29. Uh, the, bride, uh, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. Uh, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him uh, and is full of joy when he hears, uh, when he hears him. Oh, sorry, uh, uh, when he hears uh, the bridegroom's voice. 
That joy is mine, John says, and is now complete. If you don't know, throughout the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is often described as a marriage. God himself being the bridegroom and his people being his bride. So John the Baptist is picking up on this imagery, this theme in the Bible. And what's he saying? He's saying Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is God himself in human form. Remember John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh. He is God himself in human form coming as the bridegroom to be united in love to his bride, to his people. And John's saying here, like the best man at a wedding, my job when the bride and the bridegroom are coming together is not to insist that the spotlight be on me. I mean, imagine if you're a wedding and the best man just steps in and says, well, actually, this moment's about me. No, it's not. It's about the bride and the bridegroom. It's about them being united in love with one another. It's about them experiencing the deep joy that comes from knowing one another's love. That's what John's saying. And he's saying you do that. He's saying he does that not reluctantly or begrudgingly as if Jesus should want to share the stage with him, like he should get a bit of the spotlight. No, no, no. He says, I do it with joy. My joy is complete because I know, John says, I know what my role is. It's my role to get out of the way so that Jesus, the bridegroom, can be united in love with his people, his bride. And that's our job, isn't it? Like, we're not John the Baptist, but there are some parallels there. Our job, as we live for Christ and serve Christ, is to not insist that the spotlight be on us, but to get out of the way so that people can see Jesus. He's the one that they need to be united with, not us. He's the one that brings deep joy. He's the one that brings eternal life. That's what people need. So John kind of sums things up in verse 30. He kind of wraps up this section by saying, I must become less. Jesus must become greater. Must, John says. Again, he knows this is God's will. It's God's plan. It's the role that the God in heaven has given him. This is what must happen. Jesus must become somebody. He must be bigger. He must be greater. And I've got to get out of the way, John says, so that people can see him. See, I don't think many of us, I heard this, uh, 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 Ray Ortland, who some of you know about, is an American kind of preacher, he tweeted the other day, uh, the other week, uh, saying something to the effect of uh, that he probably wouldn't be tempted to say, I must become greater and Jesus must become lesser. Well, not, not many of us would be tempted to say that, I'd agree. But he did point out that we might be tempted to say, I must become greater so that Jesus can become greater. Like, I, I only want this increased influence and power and control so that I can make Jesus look good. We can convince ourselves of that. I only want this larger voice, this bigger platform, this more substantial following, so that I can make Jesus look great. John says, well, John the Baptist has a different approach to things, doesn't he? 
He says, no, no, no. The way to make Jesus look great is to shrink, (laughs) is to get smaller, is to get out of the way. So that you're not trying to hog the limelight. So that people can see Jesus clearly. Not you. So that's verses 27 to 30. Right? Jesus is becoming greater and John the Baptist is content and joyful. For what it's worth, I think verses 31 to 36 actually switch gears to John who's writing the gospel speaking rather than John the Baptist. We can talk about that later on, but you'll notice in your Bible that the talking marks stop here. So there you go. It's probably John speaking and he's kind of summarising all of John chapter 3. And he's giving us four more reasons why Jesus must become greater. I'm going to whip through those. Verses 31 and 32, he says, Jesus must become greater because Jesus is from heaven and he's above all. The one who comes from above, he says, is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to this earth and speaks as one who is from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is this one who comes from heaven, right? You can look back in in John 3, verse 13. That's what he says. John 3, verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus speaking about himself. He's the only one uh, who came from heaven, who belongs to heaven, who speaks as one who is from heaven. Jesus is above all. Now, John's very clear in verse 32, that doesn't mean everyone's going to listen for Jesus. In fact, by and large, people will reject what Jesus has to say. But he is above all. He speaks as one who's from heaven. Uh, The rest of us, John the Baptist, uh, John Piper, John MacArthur, Nancy Guthrie, Beth Moore, uh, Ray Ortland, Tim Keller, uh, insert name, Aaron Boyd, Adam Humphreys, the rest of us are from earth. We belong to the earth. We speak as those from the earth. And if we've got anything useful to say at all, it's because we're pointing people to Jesus who's above all. That's good clarity, isn't it? That's what John the Baptist, that's John the Baptist's mindset. Jesus is greater than me for he comes from heaven and he is above all. Uh, Secondly, he's greater because he speaks the true words of God. This is verses 33 and 34. He is God's ultimate messenger empowered by the Spirit. I was looking at verse 33. Whoever has accepted Jesus' words has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit uh, without limit. Because Jesus has been sent by God, he speaks the very words for God. So to believe that Jesus' words are true is to certify that God is true. You see the close connection between Jesus, God's son, and his father. To accept one is to accept the other. To reject one is to reject the other. To accept Jesus' words are true is to say that God is truthful. To reject Jesus' words as true is to say that God is a liar. And like the Old Testament prophets who who before him, like John the Baptist, Jesus speaks these true words of God as he's empowered by God's spirit. Uh, But notice what John says. He says, God gives the spirit without limit. 
So the Old Testament prophets may have been empowered by God's spirit, but perhaps they only received a kind of limited amount of God's spirit, a particular measure or portion. You sometimes hear that language in the Old Testament. Not Jesus. He's the ultimate one from, sent from God. He receives the fullness of God's spirit. Jesus must become greater because he's God's ultimate spirit-empowered messenger. Third, he must become greater because the Father has placed everything in his hands. That's pretty clear in verse 35, isn't it? The Father loves the Son and he's placed everything in his hands. Like God the Father, the Son and the Spirit, they love one another. They've lived together in loving community with one another for eternity. And here we see that as an expression of his love for his Son, the Father has placed everything in his Son's hands. He's held nothing back. And that the Father made all things, all things belong to him, and so he's given his son everything. That's his inheritance. Right? Some of you might have very generous and loving fathers. Fathers, perhaps, who are very wealthy. And out of their love for you, they've placed wonderful blessings in your hands. That's your inheritance. And that's great. But, but, John's saying it's nothing compared to the greatness of the inheritance that God the Father has placed into the hands of Jesus, his son. Finally, Jesus must become greater because believing in him is our only hope of escaping God's wrath and having eternal life. That's pretty full on, isn't it? Verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on them. Whoever believes in the death of Jesus God's Son has eternal life, John says. Because upon the cross, Jesus absorbed every last bit of God's righteous anger against your sin and my sin. There's nothing left for us. He absorbed all of it, all of it. And so if you believe in him, you have eternal life with God and his people. It's a wonderful blessing. But there's a warning here. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you reject Jesus, then your sins, as it were, still rest upon your head. So God is still angry at those sins. But this is why Jesus must become greater in the end Jesus must be lifted up because he's our only hope of escaping God's wrath and having eternal life. But it's believing in him, not us, that is the key. It's looking to him, not us, that it's the key. It's being united in love with him, not us, that is the key. All of us have a hunger to be noticed. I certainly do. A hunger to be somebody, a hunger to be great. And in this passage, we see, I think pretty clearly, I hope you've seen it, that in God's eyes, the path to greatness is not looking yourself in the mirror and saying, I am somebody. Right? Maybe sometimes, some mornings, that's what you need to do. But in God's eyes, the, the, the path to greatness is kind of is understanding and being joyfully content with the fact that in comparison to the glorious greatness of Jesus, you're just a nobody, and that's okay. 
And because understanding yourself as a nobody in comparison to Jesus is where life is found. It's where joy is found. It's where freedom is found. Look at, the John, look at John the Baptist in comparison to his disciples. Being joyfully content that in comparison to the greatness of Jesus, you're just a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody who can save anybody. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that in our lives as individuals, in our ministries, in our families, in our church, in our relationships of every kind, that we would experience more of your Son, our Lord Jesus, and less of ourselves. He must become greater. Amen.